Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Amen. Amen. Well, we definitely have a live crew here today, it seems. It's great to see so many of your faces. Um, I got to uh, meet some of you all, uh, new people, people who have just been trying to plug in since the pandemic, and it is good to see uh, your faces. Um, uh, we live in a great town. It can be, I mean, Bruce did it all negative. Hey, the way to look at it positively <laughs> is you can live in the same town where it's 60 one day and it's snowing the next. It's, it, it's, you, you have the best of both worlds. All right. Well, coming out of the pandemic, I hope that, um, as, as Bruce alluded to, that we will be able to break our habitual COVID routine and push ourselves to come back in the flesh here at LSQ. And one of the ways to do that, we started a new series uh, last week looking at the book of Genesis. And we're doing that because we're not going to really know where we're going unless we know where we come from. Right? You, uh, this is what basic his- historians love to always point out, that you're destined to repeat uh, the past unless you study it to know f- how to go forward in the future. And I would ar- argue that all of our main questions today that we have in culture and society right now, questions about sexuality, about gender, about identity, about meaning, about purpose, all those questions ultimately can only be solved if you know, if we know who we are and what we're here for. And so this series that we're doing, this is not for the faint of heart. This uh, series is not going to be about dancing around today. We're going to get straight into what does the scriptures actually say about this. And I know there are a lot of verses that people point to saying, this is the verse. This is the, this, this verse is the most important one. But today, I would actually argue the verses we're about, we're about to look to are some of the most important ones in the entire Bible. And I could, you could actually make an argument. Everything else that happens in the Bible, in some respects, begins right here. And so let's look at three things today. We're going to look at the significance of your createdness. We're going to look at the reasons why your createdness matters. And then we're going to look at the way to make it real for us. So three things, the significance of your createdness, the reasons why it matters that you were created in the image of God, and then the way to make it real for us. So first, the significance of your createdness. Look at verse 26. This is that, I think, one of the most important verses. I'll read it again, even though Tess just read it. 
Then God said, let us make mankind, humankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And by the way, if you look, skip down to verse 28, it's, uh, it talks about then again rule over the fish. So this is ruling. Small question. If God has done a pretty good job ruling, right? He's God. He's been ruling for a long time. Why create humans to rule? I think the answer to that question is going to get at, the, uh, at, at our essence for significance. We need to know, we need to ask ourselves, why did he do this? And there's a couple reasons, I think, latent in this text that it gives us, too, quickly. Reason number one, the Trinity. When it says, then God, singular, let us make mankind, plural, a lot of commentaries point this out, that there is a, an allusion here to the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is tripersonal, triune, that there's something about the nature of God that is inherently relational. And if that's actually true, then what you get here then is that you are most human, you're most living into your design when you are relational as well. A couple years ago, I saw an article about a hospice worker, and she wrote uh, about uh, her experience over the decades of her work, and she said she's seen literally hundreds of people die. Hundreds of people pass away. Their, their, Their last moments, their last words, and you know what she says they never say? When you're dying, you never say, I wish I worked a little bit harder. When you're dying, you never say, I wish I accomplished a little bit more. You want to know what she says almost everybody says? Everybody says, I wish I had spent more time. I wish this relationship was better. And they would always point to a spouse or a sibling or a friend or a son or a daughter. They always would push on and talk about at the end of their life, they would assess their life based on how much they loved and how much they felt loved. And that's how you and I are going to evaluate yourself at the end of life. Which means at some level, that's relational. Because that's part of your design. And by the way, this is not animalistic instinct relationship either. There's a NYU professor, Thomas Nagel, uh, wrote an article years ago. It's actually kind of a funny name. The title of the article is, What is it like to be a bat? And his, the point of the article is, you know, bats are bats, but they can't tell you what it's like to be a bat because they don't have self-consciousness, right? B- bats don't have that. I just rhymed. I, I do it all the time. <laughs> that was funny, see? Um, but rhy- what's rhyming? Rhyming's poetry, not, not mine. But, um, but that's something that, that, on, that humans do. Animals can't do that. They don't have that introspection. They don't have that reflection. They don't have that self-consciousness. And so I think this is, what's, this is important. A lot of secular people want to make the argument that you are no more, you are no different than other animals out there. And yet, we can't account for how we can reflect, that we can, we can actually, in some ways, see ourselves from the outside. And we can not just reflect, but we can weigh morality. We can weigh mortality. Both are needed for deep human relationships. And so, first reason given to us that you have inherent value because you are made by a tripersonal God, it means that you're also inherently relational de facto as well. But the second reason, you're not just made by a trying God, you're made in their image, it says. 
Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of something else? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you are a blank slate. You are not a blank piece of paper. I know that's what our culture thinks will make you the most human, that to be able to do what you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want, right? The culture says, hey, you'll be most human when you can do whatever you want. Follow your heart. You do you. All those mantras die in, right here. Because if this is true, if you're made in the image of God, here's what God is saying. He's saying you're most human when you reflect my goodness and my love and my holiness. You know what a reflection is? It's a, think of a mirror. Mirrors can only give back what they're facing. So if a mirror is facing darkness, a mirror can only give you darkness because they can't create in and of themselves. But you know what mirrors can do? They can co-create. If a mirror has light, you can act, actually, if a mirror, that light source can be reflected through that mirror, and you can actually, that mirror can uh, bring very close the same light as the original source. And so if being human then isn't just doing whatever you want with whomever you want, but it reflects God, and the definition of God is his love and his beauty and happiness and holiness, then you're most human when you're reflecting him. It also means that we're least human when we're reflecting anything and everything else. And so hopefully you start seeing the implications here. All joy and delight is found in him, and all evil and darkness is found at some form when we're not reflecting him. The money quote for this is from C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. He says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us so dazzling, so radiant and pulsating, all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love that we cannot now imagine a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Wow. That's, that's what it means to be made in God's image. But let's try to make that practical. Being God, in God's image, therefore, gives you, gives you and me endless value. Because the world will tell you this. At some level, the world will say, hey, you were kind of made randomly. You're going to die randomly. If you add up the sum total of your carbon, it's like a couple. It's a, like 20, 30 bucks. What's really going on is a little bit of electricity that's sort of firing in your brain, and then you die. That you are what you do is what the world tells you. The world tells you that you can't come back from certain things. The world will tell you that... Um, that you are no more than your animalistic urges and, and, and emotions and feelings. But this is saying, this little phrase, let us make humankind in our image, is basically saying, you right now, you, you reflect God. And if that's true, you are more precious as a person in and of yourself. You have inherent worth and value before you do anything else on this rotating rock, there is deep meaning there, whether the rest of the world sees it or not. And so to the degree that you let that, if you let the, these little words be the definition of your humanity, if you let them be the, 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 your calling card, then you, to that degree will you be able to handle really anything that life throws in your way and everything. That's actually why at LSQ, our vision is let's live as reflections 
of God's love together in the city. Right? That's pointing to this verse right here. So if someone says to you, please, it says, who are you? If, if there's a little voice inside of you asking yourself, who am I? Please answer it. I am made by a triune God for relationship, and I reflect him. So point one, what's the significance? Right there. Now, point two, implications. Let me give you three quick reasons why this matters. And no, I just, I'm, I'm going to go, this is going to sound quick, but each one of these implications deserve infinite sermons on them. But we, we have to go through it fast. Implication number one, a lot of people today are talking about human rights, equal rights. We throw those, those phrases around. The idea of, of no matter what your race or sex or class, you have individual rights. You know what we don't talk about? We don't talk about where that comes from. We never talk about where that comes from, which is problematic because there are a lot of people in the world who don't actually believe in, in equal human rights, equal uh, um, uh, rights at, at all. And so you can't just assume, well, I, I know it's true. No, they, they don't. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, where did they come from? Eastern philosophy and religion? No. There's no individuality there. Western philosophy and religion? The Greeks? No. Aristotle did not believe all people were created equal. Plato as well. No, a lot of scholars say, they, they point out, it was Christianity that actuated it. In fact, uh, right now in February, we celebrate Black History Month. This is the time to go, we need to go back to Martin Luther King Jr., who routinely centered the call for equality. The basis for the civil rights movement in America was the, for, for Martin Luther King, was the fact that every single human was made in the image of God. Here's a sermon from his in 1960. He said this. He said, the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected and gives them worth and gives them dignity. And there are no gradations to this image of God. See, that's the root. And culture has forgotten that. And you say, well, so what? So why does that matter? Because again, remember what we said? You don't know. We don't know where we're going unless we know where we come from. You see, every culture, and, and historians will point this out, every civilization, human civilization, has always believed that their sla slavery was okay for some people. Except it took centuries. What happened is eventually Christians led the charge against slavery, uh, against discrimination, against uh, poor housing conditions with Jacob Reese, against uh, these, these ills and for civil rights. And it was also Christians in a completely different vein that led the charge against abortion. 2,000 years ago, it was okay, even legal, right? And the, the Greeks and Romans thought it was okay to leave uh, unwanted children out for the elements to, to, to kill them. Particularly, this actually happened a lot with unwanted girls. So unwanted girls were left out, and yet Christians showed up, and they said, wait a second, those girls are made in the image of God. And so they made, they made orphanages. They, they, they built whole infrastructures to do that. Why? Because if you're made in the image of God, that's why Christians have always prized life from womb to tomb. 
That's why Christians have traditionally, historically, said let's end abortion and let's care for the poor and the widowed and the marginalized. And this is, so, I mean, this is why Christians don't fit neatly in, into political left or right ideologies. And I'm not just talking about in America, I mean worldwide. You, these political ideologies always uh, prize one power group and not the other one. But Christians say, wait a second. If you're made in the image, then we need to care from womb to tomb, the whole gamut. And so again, we're going fast, so we can't go into these implications too much. But if you're a Christian, then you need to ask yourselves, where am I not caring from womb to tomb? Where have I thrown myself too much into a lens of reality that um, isn't centered on the image of God? And if you're not a Christian here today, I, would, I, I just implore you, I ask you, ask yourself, what's the root for your view of human rights and equal rights? Where does it come from? You need to know where the basis is, where that idea comes from. Implication one. Now, implication two. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. The Imago Dei is not just the root for justice, as I just described, why we should give people what they're due. I'd actually argue it's the root for, for uh, how you love anybody unlovable. Again, this is another cultural problem we're having right now. Culture once doesn't know how to handle people that you don't want to be around anymore. How do we—and and, and we can— Deep personal. Let's make it personal. How will you, how can we be around and put up with people who are hard to be with? It's a, it's a, it's a real question I'm asking. Because our technology, these phones, are designed to make it easier for you to get away from people that you don't want to be around. That's what ghosting is. That's what muting is. That's what deleting the contact is. Right? And we do it, by the way, fairly, we do it for our own mental health and distance. At the same time, all the reports are, culturally, that even though we're more connected than ever, we're more lonely than ever. Why? Because we delete and we mute and we push people away. So the solution to our problem actually creates more, more of the problem. So what are we going to do? Are we going to cancel them? Are we going to shame people? Are we going to ignore people? I mean, these are all what we're seeing happening right now. John Calvin, writing 500 years ago, he says this in his Institutes of Christian Religion. He says, We are not to look to what men in themselves deserve, but to attend to the image of God which exists in all and to which we owe all honor and love. Wow. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? What he's saying is, you might not think your enemy deserves anything from you, and probably they don't. But the image of God is in them, and because that image is so beautiful and so lovely, because God is so beautiful and lovely, on that reason alone can we give them honor and love and personhood. That's powerful. That the image of God is one of the best places you can go to figure out how do you actually love the unlovely. Because the loveliness of God is depicted 
most in this world in them. And therefore, it stands to reason that you should try to surround yourselves with the images of God. And if you want to know a good place where you can do that, you want to know a good place? New York City. New York City is a great place to do that. That's why, you know, C.S. Lewis, another quote, he says, you've never actually met a mere mortal. His point about that is, if this is true about humans, and you're not just carving, you're not just, that, that, that there is infinite uh, worth in an individual, then you're not, you never talk to anybody who's just going to be uh, mortal. And that means they, we deserve, humans deserve dignity and honor, and the implication is then, not only, that doesn't just give us resources to, to put up with people. We should actually desire and surround ourselves with other people. And if you want a good reason, therefore, why you should live and stay in New York City in the long run, it's because there are more images of God here. That's just, that's just mathematical fact. Now, I know people push back and they say, oh, but shouldn't we, you know, shouldn't there be Christians everywhere in the world? Sure. But shouldn't the most amount of Christians be where the highest concentration of the images of God I'd argue they should be. Implication number two. Everybody gets really quiet then. Oh, no. Implication number three. Again, we're going fast, and we're going to wait. I know uh, I, I, these are just, they're here. It's in the text. Look how the writer spills out how you're the image of God, right? It says, let's make, a, let's make humankind in our image, but then go to verse 27. So God created mankind in, the, in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them how? Male and female he created them. Uh-oh. Um, I think a lot of times we just sort of glance right over that. We just kind of move by. That's just, that's just you know, fact. Nope. Writers, the writer of Genesis was always making a theological point. And here it is. If you're made in God's image and God is, is tripersonal, that means everybody is equal, but everybody is also different and has different roles and functions, then there's something about maleness and femaleness that mimics that. That there's something about being male and being female, the diversity of maleness and femaleness, that's actually not bad, but part of the design of being made in a Trinitarian God. And I think here's the problem. We live in a, a heavily influenced uh, Greco-Roman world still, where the body is bad and we need to kind of actualize it, and the soul and the mind is good, and so that's why you're just your emotions and feelings, and the, the body's just a vessel, but Christianity shows up here and says, no, you're not just a brain. There's something about your physical bodily infleshness, which we've been talking about during the whole pandemic. Right? That's why it's weird. I, I'm, I'm so glad folks are, are zooming in and through uh, live stream. But there's something weird when your senses are saying you're present, but your body knows that you're not. That, you're, that there's a disembodied space there. Because there's something about being embodied souls. That the physical, tangible fleshiness of your maleness and femaleness actually matters and is good. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means gender is complicated, but it's real. And this is what's so weird. And I think often conservatives do gender exaltation or exaggeration. They overplay, potentially, gendered stereotypes uh, that might be cultural and not innate. At the same time, I would argue that a lot of progressives, they tend to gender flat or gender eradicate and say there is no real difference. But Christianity shows up here and says, wait a second, no, actually, Jesus did not come as a ghost, and he wasn't raised from the dead as a ghost. In fact, one of the first things he did was he went off and ate some fish. Why? Because there's something good about the body. 
And this is where it gets really, really complicated. That in some levels, your body being male and female is good. And at the same time, our bodies are broken. You die. We die. We're, we, we, we don't feel comfortable in our bodies. That's why there's body image issues. That's why there is body dysmorphia. Right? There is these things. These are, this is real. But it also means sexuality. Let me be very clear. All sexuality, every form of human sexuality is broken and, and messed up. But if the future is resurrected, bodies like Jesus, and if the future is dancing and physical and tangible, and that means then the future is also male and female. And if the Trinitarian God, uh, if we see in there a neededness between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they had perfect unity and, and love and care and acceptance, but also difference together, then that's the same thing for us too. There's something then the huge implication here is there's something about your body. You, there's something about being male and there's something about female that we, we need each other, for lack of a better phrase. So this has huge gender, sexual, and ethical implications. And we don't have more time. I would, if we had more time, we'd spend more on it. But here's what I want you to get. You are your body, but you're not just your body. And your body is good, but it's fallen. And therefore, it's some, there's something beautiful about being male that I think our culture has forgotten. If you try to ask the average person, what is, what is positive, not toxic masculinity, what is positive masculinity? We can't say. But the Bible does. There's something positive about femaleness and femininity, and there's something positive about maleness and masculinity, and we're supposed to celebrate that. All right, it's implication three. <laughs> we're going so fast. Last point. So how can all this be made real? That's nice, Mike. So very nice. Very theoretical. But how do we make it real? I started to allude to this already in, in how our bodies are broken, but mirrors don't have imperfections in them, don't they? Right? If you see some of those old mirrors, there's like spots on them. Sometimes they get, get warped. You can't see them straight. Right? You, our mirrors are not full of God. And because of that... We're not actually always reflecting his love and beauty and glory and acceptance. We actually have a lot of hurt and shame and brokenness. If I tell you, you know, let's say we end the sermon this way. Okay, you are reflections of God's, of God. Go and do. What you should say is, yeah, but how can I reflect that which I can't see? You should say, well, it's really hard to reflect something I can't see. God, you can't see God. But this is where Paul's helpful. Go to Colossians 1.15. And he says this, he says, the sun is the image of the invisible God. One little phrase, and what he's saying is Jesus is the ultimate image of God. He's the image of the divine glory. If I tell you, go outside on a sunny day and, and look up at the glory of the sun, try to do that. Guess what? You know what happened? You'll burn your eyes out <laughs> because the glory of the sun is too much. But if I gave you a filter... And you can actually, and you see this like little kids, you know, in school, they, put, they look at the, the, through the, at the sun through that filter. They can see the attributes of God, but only through the screen that they're seeing it through. Jesus is the ultimate filter, Paul is saying, in the world because we can finally see God through him. Another way to put it is this. If I say, go and behold the glory of God, that's way too abstract. But if I tell you, 
you can actually see God's holiness in Jesus' holiness and glory and goodness. Now that's something you can behold. John Owen says this. He says, Jesus was never more glorious than when he was brought down from the cross, broken for us. What's that? If you want to see God's glory, to glorify some, just to, that's such a religious word. Glory, to glorify somebody, just to put, it just means to put your happiness in their happiness. And the best example from, for us, Owen says, is Jesus on the cross, where he said, I'm going to put my happiness in their happiness and die for them. Why? Because when you love somebody, when you really, really, really love somebody, you can't be happy unless they're happy. True story. Uh, a, a minister um, that I actually know of, he had a son who uh, grew up in, in the church, heard a lot of the things that you're hearing today, right? A lot, of, a lot of these platitudes, a lot of these statements, and yet he said, you know what? I'm out of here. I, I reject this. I don't believe this. And he ran away. And um, he moved out from, from his home, and he moved to a different state. One night, this minister, middle of the night, gets a phone call from the police station saying, your son had a DUI. Please come on down to the station. And um, so he, you know, got up, got in his car, drove down to the station, and he gets there, and the police officer said, your son is not here, that nobody of that name <clears throat> is being held here. So he thought maybe it was a mistake. So he goes, maybe it was another jail. So he, he went from town to town looking for his son. And at every police station, they said, nope, your son's not here. So eventually, he had heard rumors where his son, through friends, where his son was living in Stain, um, in, in Chicago. And so he goes to this house, and the door was unlocked. And he walked inside, and it was dirty, it was messy, and he, he uh, in a sleeping bag on a mattress on the floor, he finds his son. And he gets over to him, stands over him, and sees him sleeping on the floor. He walks over, and the only thing he does is he bends down and kisses him on the cheek and walks out. Months later, this son begins visiting his parents again, and slowly but surely, actually, he, he becomes a Christian. And in a funny way, he becomes a pastor. Sometimes pastor's sons become pastors too. <laughs> and um, one day, this father and son, they were walking. This is years later. And the father said, what brought you home? Why did you come back to Christianity? Was it the arguments? Was it the, was it the reasons? And his son looked at his dad and said, you don't know. He said, remember that night years ago when I called you? from the jail, um, sorry, when you got a call from uh, that I was in jail, he said, Dad, that was a friend. It was a prank. We, we, we were pranking you the whole time. And when you came to our house, we were just pretending to be asleep. I was actually wide awake, and I knew you had driven all night, looking around for me, and I, I wondered what you were going to do to me. And when you bent down, just give me a kiss. That was enough. Dad, you brought me home with a kiss. If the kiss of an earthly father can bring his son home, what if we saw the heavenly father through the love of the true son, the true image of God, who put your happiness at the center of his happiness to do something about our brokenness? What if we saw that in the cross as a kiss? See, now and when you understand and believe in Jesus, when we actually gaze on him and we see Jesus' beauty and we see his glory and we see his love in action throughout history and meditate and ponder on him, he's the image of the invisible God. And when we come back to him and begin to reflect 
on that. You know what happens? We reflect back out into the world. All those things that Christians know they can do from womb to tomb, we actually do do. Friends, reflect the glory of God. Reflect his glory, and the more delighted you are in Jesus, the more glorious God appears to you, the more you will put your love in his love, and the more then you're going to seek out to glorify others. Translation, the more you'll put your happiness in their happiness. To find something glorious, guys, it's just, it's just a delight in it. When I, in, on my vacation time in the summers, I love to sit on a balcony and watch the waves from the ocean just, just come in. And, and as that rhythmic, those waves kind of come in over and over and over again, I can almost feel my spirit lift. Why? What's happening? Because in just a small sense, I'm getting a taste of God's glory, his, his regularity, his power, his holding all things through a wave. And if you and I can have that from just a taste of creation, what if we delighted not just in what he made, but in what he's done through Jesus? You are being right now invited into a relationship of love and delight. And it's based on, it's centered on how you were made. Who are you? Is the question I want to leave you with. Because the way you answer that question is going to be the way that you live out the rest of your life. And Jesus is saying, come into this community of wonder and love. Don't you want that? He's inviting you back because of that we now can invite others into, into your life and into this church and into the light. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just be honest, I often don't feel the kisses. I see the hurt. I see the brokenness. I see all the the stuff in the world, Father, and I, and I, it doesn't, I, don't, I do not see you clearly. I pray that we do. Help us to come see you. Help us to delight in, in you. Help us to see that you delight in us first. And that moves and changes us, Father. I wouldn't, there's nothing wrong with power, approval, comfort, and control, but Father, when we reflect those things first and foremost, it leads to the brokenness of the world. Help us to reflect you first and, and order all other things in your name. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.